Psalm 106, verses 19 through 23. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshiped the cast metal. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. They forgot God, their Savior, who did great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awe-inspiring acts at the Red Sea. So he said he would have destroyed them if Moses, his servant, had not, excuse me, I'm sorry, if Moses, his chosen one, had not stood before him in the breach to turn his wrath away from destroying them. Amen. Thank you, Carla. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may our hearts truly be enraptured with you. May you be the one that our hearts adore. Those words that we just sang, Lord, I pray that they would be true of us, that we would delight in you above all else. And as we reflect this morning on what happened there in the wilderness and the idolatry and the turning away from you to, to false gods, gods made in our own image, con conceived in our own minds, Lord, I pray that your word would, would rise up from the pages and grip our hearts so that we might be alert to the ways that we exchange your glory for, for cheap substitutes. God, we want to hear from you and ask that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 32 where we encounter this well-known story. And the title of today's message is Unholy Cow, Rebellion and Mercy in the Desert. This is a story that if, you, if you've grown up in Sunday school or even if you haven't had a lot of exposure to life in the church, you, you've, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with this story. And so we're going to kind of work our way through the passage and describe a little bit about what, what went on. You know, we, we're, we're naturally drawn to stories of rebellion, right? We like books and movies that, that, that characterize this, this villain, this tyrant, and we love seeing the average person uh, rise up and lead a rebellion. Stories like Robin Hood or, or maybe uh, Braveheart or, or Star Wars. I mean, these are, even, even the founding of our nation was born out of rebellion against tyranny. And, and, and so we naturally are, are drawn to those, those, sorts of, those sorts of stories. They're compelling to us. Well, what's crazy about this story of rebellion is that there was no evil tyrant to be rebelled against. There's no bad guy that they're, uh, you know, whose, whose wickedness they're trying to overthrow, no shackles needing to be cast aside. The, the, the one being rebelled against is God himself, the one who has loved them, pursued them, shown him his, his grace, and, and in his mercy, he's led them out of Egypt and done the miraculous in order to, to bring them unto himself. And yet, we see God's people rebelling against him. And so, if you found your place in Exodus 32, we're going to uh, begin uh, in just sort of, we'll look at these first six verses before we move on to the next section. And if you're taking notes in your outline, we're going to kind of divide it into just four, four words, four words that are going to kind of capture the way we're looking at things today. And the first word is rebellion. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1, tells us this. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron replied to them, 
Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took off the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. And they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party. This is disastrous. God has just given his law. He's been speaking to the people. They, they've, they've, they've gotten, I mean, Moses hasn't come down from the mountain yet, he, but, but he's only been up there 40 days. Exodus 24, 18 tells us that. 40 days and 40 nights. And in that amount of time, the people have freaked out. They've panicked. And they said, this, this God's abandoned us. Well, we, we don't know. And, and, and Moses, he's, he's nowhere to be seen. To be fair, Moses was their connection to God. He was their mediator. He was the only one who had spoken with God. He was their go-between. And they started to get nervous. They started to get fearful after 40 days goes by. And so they wanted, they wanted to, to figure this out, how they could worship on their own. Now, just, um, just by way of trying to, this, this is by no means excusing their behavior, but trying to understand it, because God's very clear about what he thinks about their behavior as the story goes on. But first of all, this is all they've ever known. This is, having a, a physical representation of a deity is all they've ever experienced in Egypt. They've, this, is, this is what they associate with worship. Secondly, I've got to give them credit. They wanted to worship. I mean, 40 days had gone by, and they're like, we, we, we want to bow down here. We want to sing praises. I mean, the, the, the description of their, their pagan worship service in verse 6, there's certainly a lot more passion than what we exhibit in our worship services. Like, they said, all day. You know, we're like, if, if I go over 15 minutes, I see like people are checking their watches and kind of shuffling. I hear phones starting to go off, timers for your ovens or whatever. Like, like they spent all day in worship, all right? So let's just give them a little bit of credit here. But what happens is, is they took a good desire and they, they totally messed it all up. You see, all of us were created to be worshipers. God designed us with, with this desire to have awe of something, to look at something that's bigger and greater than us and, and to bow down before it. We were designed that way. And the design was that that would be God that we're bowing down before. The Israelites here, they get off base. Now, once again, not excusing any of their behavior. But I just want to note this, because we, we beat up on the Israelites. It's so easy to read this and just be like, looking down, like we're looking down at our Bible, so we're actually looking down on them and shake our heads and be like, you guys, so stupid. You're idiots. And they were, but we are too, okay? We're going to see here that we find ways to make substitutes for God. We're way too sophisticated and probably not that knowledgeable to make a calf or some sort of graven statue we're not burning incense to our ancestors in our homes. We're, we're way beyond that. We're way too spiritual for that. Now, we find other objects of worship. And, and, and so, 
Aaron here, it's so heartbreaking to see how he just rolls over and, and succumbs to their peer pressure. And th this idea seems to start with the people, and then Aaron's like, okay, let's, let's go for it. And he has them bring their gold. And notice, where did they get that gold? That was gold that God provided as they plundered Egypt on their way out. Do you remember that part of the story of the Exodus? They just were asking people to give them their gold, and they're like, sure, just get out of here. We just, they want the plagues, to be over, the plagues to be over, and they said, get out. And, and so this is gold. So this is, this is gold provided by God for them, and they're taking this good gift from God, and they're turning it into idolatry. We, do we see any connections yet in, in our own lives? How we can take things that are good from God and turn them and twist them and make them take the place of God in our heart and life. So Aaron fashioned them. Just one textual note, and some of your, most of our translations uh, say this in the, in the plural, like you look at verse 4, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, but most of your Bibles will have a little footnote there. That, that's the word Elohim that's often used to speak of God himself, and Elohim is always in the plural, usually refers to the God, Jehovah, in the, the singular, but it's always in the plural. So the, the context determines whether it's multiple gods being talked about or whether it's one God. Just the, the, the Hebrew uses the plural there. It's something that we wouldn't do in English, but is, is common in Hebrew there. And, and so most likely Aaron only fashioned one God. The text seems to indicate that there was just one statue. And so he's probably saying, here's your God, Israel. Here's your God. And, and note... And scholars are kind of uh, split on this. Um, in verse 5, he said, There will be a festival to the Lord. And you'll see it's all caps. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. That's the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. It, it seems like Aaron and the people were violating the second commandment. They don't make any graven images. Rather than the first commandment, which Israel will do throughout their history, pursuing other gods. It seemed like they were still trying to honor Yahweh, but they were going about it wrong, the wrong way, and, and they were, of course, disobeying that second commandment. You shall not make any graven images. Some scholars think that they're just breaking both of them, and they're worshiping other gods, they're making idols, and it's just, it's just a mess. Regardless, this is idolatry. This is idolatry. My brothers and sisters, we need to see from this story, and I, I think God's intent in, in, in framing the story this way is to see the foolishness of idolatry. I love just how bluntly John Calvin wrote so many years ago in, his, his, in a sermon on Exodus. He said this, In this narrative, we perceive the detestable impiety of the people, they're worse than base ingratitude, and listen to this, they're monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. I love that. They're monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. Could they not see the pillar of fire in the cloud? Was not God's paternal solicitude abundantly conspicuous every day through the manna? Was he not near them in ways innumerable? Oh, he said, listen, God's presence was everywhere and yet they still pulled this switch. They still wanted something physical, something that they could see and touch to take the place of God. It's utterly stupid. Calvin's right. 
But this stupidity is the stupidity to which we all succumb whenever we sin, whether it's idolatry or some other sin. Sin is stupid. We, we in the moment, we don't believe that. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Like, there, there might be a few of us who, like, are in that moment, like, I'm going to do something stupid right now. They could wreck my life. We, we've all probably made those decisions. Some of those decisions have been made in buffet lines, right? I'm about ready to do something stupid here. I'm loosening the belt already. I know that I'm going to regret this, but here we go. Now, some of you have made this decision at the, uh, on the backside of a dare. Like There's a, just been a phrase like, I dare you too. And you're like, yeah, this is probably pretty dumb, but I can't back down or whatever. Uh, but sin, for the most part, in that moment, we, we may be quenching the spirit. We may know in the back of our mind that this is not a good idea. But at the end of the day, like we, we do it because we want to. In that moment, we want that more than we want obey, obedience to God. Sin is foolishness. But in the moment, the enemy tries to convince us that it's, it's perfectly rational. In fact, it's good for you. And idolatry is no less true than any other sin. The Heidelberg Catechism defines idolatry this way, having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. You see, rebellion against God always seems like a good idea at the time. And we're constantly tempted to trust other things than God. There's, we, we can turn... Listen... Mankind is incredibly gifted at turning anything into an idol. We can flip anything around and make it an idol. Money, power, relationships, other people that God has given us to enjoy in our life, to, to have fellowship with. We can create unhealthy, codependent relationships, success, food, and, and, and other addictions, our phones, uh, Politi the, the political world, making sure we get the right person in the office. It's just, just got to happen or else. Seeking other people's approval and, and finding our worth in, in our accomplishments or their affirmation. We go on and on and on. We can turn anything into an idol. And most of them start off as good things, gifts from God. How do we spot them? How do we root them out? I'm just going to give you five questions real quick to ask. I didn't put these in your notes or on the screen. And if, if you don't get them written down, I can email them to you later this week. But here's, here's five quick questions that you could ask yourself to reflect on. Where are my idols? Where's my tendency to go if I'm not turning to Jesus? First question, where do my thoughts go in time of solitude? When I'm quiet, when i got time to daydream, when I've got those moments right before bed or when I first wake up, when, when, um, when, I, when I've got time to just reflect, where do my thoughts go? Is it to Jesus? Or is it to how I can get this, how I can build this, how I can impress this person? Where do my thoughts go in times of solitude? Second thing, what do I spend my money on? Eww. That's kind of convicting. Let's move on. Third one, to what or to whom do I turn when I'm stressed? To what or to whom do I turn when I'm stressed? When I'm having a bad day and I get home and I want to veg, I want to I check out, what am I doing then in that moment? I'm not saying it's bad to take a nap. 
Sometimes, we had a teacher at Bible college that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. I'm not saying it's bad to watch TV sometimes. I'm not saying it's, it, it's bad to find those things that bring, bring you life in those moments. But am, am, I, am I resting on those things to be my functional savior in that moment? Am I saying, I need this or else I can't go on. I can't, I can't get through this day if I don't have this. What do I turn to when I'm stressed? Do I turn to prayer do I turn to the refrigerator? Do I, do I turn to Jesus or do I turn to social media, shopping, whatever it might be? Fourth question, how do I respond to unanswered prayers or disappointments? How do I respond to unanswered prayers or disappointments? Sometimes that can reveal maybe something that's much too important to me. And then the fifth question, what do I get most upset about? What is it that elicits my most strongest emotions? What do I, when I find myself angry, I can just tell you one for me, especially when our kids were younger, is uh, uh, I would, uh, like if, if, if I was trying to like have the morning go smooth before school and it didn't go the way that I wanted it to, if they weren't ready uh, or have their, have their snow gear all set out the night before, and, and my schedule was disrupted, I could find myself getting very angry and short-tempered because I had this, I had this, this locked in, like this is the way my morning goes. I had, I had created this ideal. And all of a sudden, it, it was, it, it would, it would, when it didn't go that way, it would cause me to react sinfully to my kids. And I can, I can justify that as long as I want. Like, well, they should obey and they should listen. Well, that's fine. They should. But if, if I'm getting sinfully angry about it, that means that maybe this is too, too important to me, that having a smooth morning has become a bit of an idol. If I don't have this smooth morning, well, then I can't have a good day. See what I mean? We can turn anything into an idol an expectation, a relationship, an, a, a material possession, anything that begins to take me away from Jesus can be an idol. And we need to be on the lookout. Let's be careful about scoffing it and pointing at the Israelites because, uh, as Calvin has said, the human heart is an idol factory. We, we have no trouble creating idols out of that which God has given us and blessed us with. May we be humble enough to prayerfully seek God to reveal these things so that we might repent and turn from them. I got kind of wound up in the first point here. I promise they're not all going to be this long. The second word I want to point out is intercession. Intercession. There's something great that happens here. There's something interesting and great in these next verses. Verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses. So God is seeing all of this. And he says, go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They've quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves an image of a calf. And he goes on to describe their worship. The Lord said to Moses in verse 9, I've seen this people and they're indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. Wow. You see how God reacts to idolatry. There's some of us that read those verses are like, easy, God, come on, just take it easy, chill out a little bit. But we're getting a little glimpse at the seriousness of sin. There's none of us, none of us who see sin the way God sees sin. It's an affront to his holiness. 
We all can justify. We all, we all minimize. We can all excuse sin. We don't have to be trained to do that. But we see here that God is a holy God and he can't tolerate sin. He's not okay with it. It's not that he was going to abandon the covenant that he had made to Abraham, that he was going to create a great nation through them. He just said, I'm going to start over here, Moses. I'm going to start with you. I'm going to wipe all these, all these people out, and we're just going to start fresh. Now, if a passage like this was all we knew about God, we'd be like, man, he is angry. He gets, he's quick-tempered. I don't know if I like this God. We know that this is not the entire picture of God. This isn't, the, this isn't all we know about God about our God, as we, we're going to see next week, uh, we're going to see some His mercy and compassion, and, and, and we'll actually see it here in a moment. But, but what we do get a glimpse of is the holiness of God and His seriousness, the, the seriousness with which He takes sin. I love Moses' response. Verse 11, Moses, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. What a great phrase. What a great transition. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. This was not some half-hearted effort on Moses' behalf. This wasn't like, a, well, I mean, God, do whatever you want. He stepped in and he began to passionately plead for his people, for his countrymen. He goes before God. Can you, I mean, the audacity. This, is, this, is, this, this chapter here is really Moses' finest hour. This is peak Moses. We've seen a lot of lame Moses and silly Moses, but here this is, this is Moses and his boldness and his love for people, his people. He steps up and he, he interceded on their behalf. And, and this, the, the way even this, this sentence is phrased indicates the intimacy he had with God. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. This, this, he had a relationship with this God. You see, my brothers and sisters, we're not going to intercede effectively. We're not going to be passionate about prayer if, if God is not the Lord, our God. If he is the Lord, a God, or the God of the Bible, if he's just stuck in these pages, or if he's our parents' God, or our, our discipleship class teacher's God, we're, we're not going to, our prayer life's going to be a joke. But if he's the Lord, our God, and we begin to see others through his eyes, this love that Moses had for his people, it didn't just come from within. It came from a love that God had given him. And so he began to plead on their behalf. He says, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Listen to his audacity. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. You hear that? And relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land I've promised and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning his the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Now, there's so much we could say about prayer right here. But do you just, do you hear the boldness of Moses? He's not like hedging this, like, God, you know, sort of, if you don't mind, if you would please, like, just kind of reconsider. He has the boldest. Look at this. Look at the way the, the verbs are come across here. He says, turn from your fierce anger. Relent 
concerning this disaster. Remember your servants, Moses. He has this boldness before God. My brothers and sisters, if anything, we have the opportunity to have even more boldness from God. Remember the verse we read last week from, I think it was last week, from Hebrews, that we have boldness to enter the throne room of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can talk to God like this. When was the last time you cried out to God in such a passionate way? Who was that for? Who needed healing? Whose soul needed saving? Whose, whose sin was keeping someone from enjoying him? Who had wandered away from the family of God that, that, that called you just to this passionate place of prayer? I, I think sometimes we are just, well, number one, we're just not all that serious about prayer. But number two, we're, we're just way too meek and timid and bumbly with it. Like, like tell God. Like, he, and he was asking God according to his will. Like He knew he had made a covenant. He said, remember your covenant, God. He's praying according to the will of God. Like, you know, I'm not talking about, like, sometimes we just ask for weird, crazy, selfish things. That's not what I'm talking about. He's praying a God-centered, Scripture-saturated prayer. Like, when we pray God-centered things, we can be bold about them. Does God want people to get saved? Yes, He does. I didn't hear everybody say amen or yes to that. That should have been your answer. Yes, he does. So when we pray, God save this person, we can pray with boldness because we already know that God wants to save people. When you have that loved one who's wandering away from Jesus and you say, God, turn them back, even if you have to use hard means to turn them back to Jesus, you can pray boldly because you're praying something that God wants you to pray. Don't pray boldly about a new Maserati. God didn't tell you to ask for that. But God has told us certain things to ask for. Read Paul's prayers if you need a place to start. Read the Psalms if you need a place to start. And you can find out what you can boldly come to God and say, God, please, I need you to step in here. I need you to do this. Because you've told me to pray this, and so I'm praying it boldly. Read uh, the, the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. You can begin to pray boldly like Moses here. There's so much we could say about his prayer. And then look at God relented. Verse 14, God relented. And there are some, a lot of theological questions up here because the Bible says God doesn't change, okay? And God is sovereign. The Bible tells us he's declared the end from the beginning. But what Scripture also teaches is that God has ordained the means as well as the end. And God has said, has declared, I want prayer to be used to accomplish my will. So this isn't God waking up in that morning, like all of a sudden he's like, I'm ticked at these Israelites. I think I'm going to kill them. And then like, eh, maybe not. Like God's not wishy-washy. He's not flaky. He doesn't wake up each and every day. He never wakes up because the Bible says he never slumbers or sleeps. But I'm just kind of using a metaphor here. God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I wonder what we're doing today. I guess we'll just kind of figure out what people pray for and we'll just go with it. That's, that's not how God works. He, he knows what's going to happen, but he's also ordained the means. This is a mystery. I don't, I don't pretend to understand how the mind of God works and how he accomplishes his will. But he says, I'm sovereign over everything. And he says, you better pray. I, I know those things are true. So I can pray with confidence knowing that God's working out and accomplishing his will. But I also know that he's called me to pray and I'm praying in obedience and I can pray boldly when I'm praying in accordance with his will. Prayer makes a difference, my brothers and sisters. Read this passage, and you see that it does. 
There's a lot more we could say there. But the third, the third word I want you to write down is punishment. And I'll just touch on this briefly. There were consequences for this disobedience. I'll just summarize these verses. But basically, Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees this. He, he, he hears it first and then he sees what's going on. And he gets so furious that he smashes these tablets. It just is a kind of a, a early precursor, precursor to Jesus overturning the money change, changing tables. Like it's okay to get passionate when you see God's people disobeying God. And Moses is worked up, and he goes, and he gets so ticked off, if you read there, he actually grinds up the idol, and he melts it down, grinds it up, and puts it in water and makes, it drink, makes him drink it. Like, he doesn't just say, like, guys, you shouldn't have done this. Like, he's like, okay, you wanted this? You can have it. You can have it. Here, take it. It's yours. Drink it down. There's some, some symbolism that's tied into some of the, the Near Eastern views there about the the total destruction of a deity um, that, that's part of why he did that. But you can just see his passion. Beyond that, he sends the Levites in and killed 3,000 people. You can read about that in verses 25 through 29. Killed 3,000 people who hadn't repented, whose hearts were still hard. And then in verse 35, we see that God sends a plague on the people, though we're not given a lot of details about it. Here's the thing that we need to see. Um, sin brings consequences. Sin brings consequences, my brothers and sisters. Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin or the, 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 what, what, what sin gives you in return for, for your time with it is death, separation from God. Through Jesus Christ, the Bible says that, that he's taken that punishment upon him. For all those who trust in Jesus, we're set free from death. We don't have that, that penalty hanging over us anymore. But I'm telling you what, it doesn't mean that that, that changes the fact that sin has consequences. When, even as children of God, when we walk in rebellion against him, when we turn away from him, there, there will be consequences. Sin is serious. Moses had... Um, Came, he, when he came down and, and spoke to Aaron, <laughs> he, um, Aaron just, just absolutely looks like a fool. And we return to the idea of, of sin is stupid. Um, verse 21 says, uh, Moses turned to Aaron and said, What did these people do that you've led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourselves know, you yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who you brought up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, out came a calf. <laughs> we laugh, but that, that's, that's what we do every time we try to justify our sin. We look just as silly as Aaron. He's blame shifting I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm well-versed in that. We, we, it's easy to find all kinds of people, circumstances, I didn't get a good night's sleep, whatever it is, to pass the buck, to justify our sin. Aaron says, listen, they, they pressured me to do it. And, 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 and then the silliness of, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. 
My brothers and sisters, we got to be alert to the way that we twist and distort and justify our disobedience against God because it's right there. It's easy to do. And it's just as silly as the, what, what Aaron is doing here, only we don't see it when we're doing it. We're blind to that. The last word I want you to write down is atonement. Atonement. I love how this passage finishes. This is beautiful. Verse 30 says, The following day Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now if only you would forgive their sin. But if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Wow. Wow. Moses, he looks at this. He's already smashed the stone tablets that were written by the very finger of God. He's, in, his, in his just anger, he's made them drink the, the gold dust from their idol. He's seen 3,000 people wiped out. And yet his heart breaks for them. His heart is moved with compassion. And he says, all right, I'm going to go up there and see if I can atone for your sin. And he comes to God. Even after having seen all of the ugliness of their behavior. I'm trying to imagine, I would have been like, listen, I'm sorry I ever prayed and asked you to spare them in the first place. Can we go back to that, wipe them out, start over with me idea that you had, God? Now that I've seen it firsthand, I kind of agreed with your first assessment. No. He says, I want to go make atonement for you. I want to go and see if I can step into your place. He was the only one not down there. Well, probably, probably Joshua wasn't either and her. And, and, and most likely there were some people, some of the Levites and others who hadn't participated in it. He would have been the one who would have had the most justification in saying, you know what, let it burn. Let them go. Forget about it. Or at the very least, just go up there and say, well, it's your move, God. What do you want to do next? But no, he doesn't even do that. He comes up and says, I want to take their place. If you can't just wipe away their sin, then blot me out of your book. What love. What humility. What grace. He saw their sin firsthand. He experienced the rebellion. And he says, I'm willing to be removed from your book so that they might live. Wow. God's response is no. It doesn't work that way. You can't stand in their place. They're going to be dealt with. Moses becomes a picture of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to do what Moses could not. Moses wanted to step in. And even if he could, think about it, it would be just a, a small portion of humanity in a one-time act for this particular group, even if God said yes. But what Jesus came to do was to take upon him the sins of the world, to bear your sins and mine, who live all these thousands of years later. Past, present, future, anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
This passage reminds us that we have a God who is a God who cares about atonement. A God who says, we'll make a way. You see, there's nothing you and I can do to take care of our sin problem. There's nothing you and I can do to fix our idolatrous hearts. That's outside of the realm of control. Even the most ambitious and compassionate and willing among us cannot fix our problem or those, those, the, the sin of those whom we love. But Jesus can. This passage looks forward to the coming Savior who would take our sins upon the cross and rise again three days later to give victory over death in the grave. This is a story, a familiar story. And a story, if we're not careful, can be one that we stand back from and judge and snicker. But it's a story that we need to, into which we need to insert ourselves. You see, my brothers and sisters, we've all turned after other gods. We've all found other cheap substitutes that have captured our hearts. We need to repent of that and turn to the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, would you give us eyes to see the ways in which we justify and excuse our sin, and may we repent of it. Heavenly Father, we are, we're born as sinners into this world, separated from God, with hearts bent towards evil. And we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. And, and even in that, we know that we're going to mess up. But I pray, God, that none of us would live a life where we're okay with that, where we're okay with disobedience, that our hearts grow so hard that we just shrug off sin. Lord God, today, if, if there's hard hearts here that need to be softened, Lord, please do that in any way you need to do. Lord, soften our hearts so that we might see sin the way you see sin, that we might see the idols that we've built up in our hearts and lives, and that we might turn from them and cast them aside and embrace you as the one who is only and truly worthy of our worship. We thank you, God, for the atonement that's through Jesus Christ. What Moses was willing to do and unable to do is what our Savior was willing to do and fully able to do. And we're just so thankful that you have made redemption possible for all those who will trust in, in Jesus and embrace him. Father, give us grace this week. Be gentle with us as, as you reveal sin in our hearts. May we, may we be people who passionately pray and intercede for others just like Moses did for, for your people. God, stir our hearts and awaken in us a wonder and a deeper love for you. Now may God be your exceeding joy, Christ your only hope, the Holy Spirit your unfailing comforter in all your worship, in all your work, and in all your troubles until Jesus comes. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.